Welcome to the summer edition of Published or Not on 3CR, 8.55am online and digital. I'm Ewan Mitchell and for the next half hour I'll be talking books and publishing with our guest authors for the week. So whether you're relaxing on holiday or keeping the country running, I hope you enjoy Published or Not. So we've done Christmas for another year. Half of Melbourne has gone down the coast. England's cricketers are trying to salvage some pride at the MCG. And the new year is just a few days away. Which means various persons who will remain unnamed might be recovering from overconsumption of food or alcohol or possibly both. And in this mood of penitence, a person's thoughts can naturally turn to reflections on their life experiences, and perhaps resolutions for the new year. So our theme for this week on Published or Not is life writing. In the first half of the show, we have an expert on life writing who coaches people interested in taking up one of the many forms of writing based on personal experiences. Then my second guest will talk about her memoir of a road trip across America where she reinvented herself after a marriage breakup. So first up... Today I'm chatting with Australia's expert on life writing. She's an award-winning memoirist and non-fiction writer who has helped thousands of people transform life experiences into the written word. And she has a new book out titled Writing True Stories, published by Alan and Unwin. Welcome to Published or Not, Patty Miller. Thanks, Ewan. It's great to be here. Good. And I'd like to start by unpacking the subtitle of your new book. So the main title is Writing True Stories, but the subtitle is the Complete Guide to Writing Autobiography, Memoir, Personal Essay, Biography, Travel and Creative Nonfiction. It's quite a mouthful. So perhaps could we start by distinguishing between autobiography and memoir? Yeah, that that's there's a long subtitle. I was wondering if they could fit it all on on the cover, actually. But it's it's yes, it's it's the whole territory of of nonfiction where the narrate there's a first person narrator. So it's it's a really broad territory. But but uh, for autobiography and memoir, autobiography is 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 the story of a whole life, just about everything you you want to include. You know, in, you know, from birth to where you are from, now. Yeah, birth to fame, some no, people say, but <laughs> or womb to the tomb. Yes, yes, but but a, a memoir is, um, as I define it, an aspect of a life. So that could be um, uh, a time in your life. You know, the year that you you lived in Moscow, for example, yeah. or it could be a relationship. You know, bringing up your son who has a hearing disability. So or, it's a selection of events. Yes, it? yes, it's it's and it's or it could be around a theme. So it's it's limited, say, by a time or a place or a relationship, or an idea, you know, say The the Mind of a Thief is around a native title claim. That's one of my earlier memoirs, whereas Ransacking Paris is about the year I lived in Paris. So so one is limited by a place where it took place, and the other one is, is shaped by a particular issue, by um, native title. So, and, it, and how does that type of life writing, memoir and autobiography, differ from, say, creative nonfiction? Well, the borderlands can be very blurry, but um, creative nonfiction can also include um, other topics altogether. You could be writing a book which is a history, for example, or um, psychological research or um, geography, 
or yeah. any other kind of topic. Really, people, uh, I think the whole concept of nonfiction has changed a lot. Where there is um, a lot more blending, say, borderlands with the edge of memoir, because people enjoy having that first-person narrator telling them about, you know, the geology of the Himalayas, for example, rather than just having the facts and information. So it's 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 that kind of territory which is. Which is more personalised, I guess. Now that borderland, uh, you've got uh, entire chapters devoted to that. But I better start by explaining that your book is organised in two parts: part one and part two. What does part one present to the reader? Part one is is more for people who maybe are starting out with writing, or they've come from a very different writing background. Say they've been writing um, reports, you know, for their company, or they have been writing academic papers at university. So, or who haven't done much writing of any kind. So, it's really presenting the writing skills of of memoir, which are really exactly the same writing skills as writing fiction. So the basics, really, from right from the start. Yes, h- how to build a world on the page. You know, it's the same fiction, nonfiction. You have to build a convincing and and interesting world on the page, whether that world is on the planet Zorg or it's your backyard, you still it's still the same skills. So it's very much skills-based, the first section. But the second section is for people who are more experienced or have become so working through the book. So the master classes, as The master, word? master yeah. classes, yeah. So it's, it's looking at uh, write, developing writing uh, issues further, such as structure and narrating point of view, um, but also uh, particular um, issues which are not directly about writing skills but are the problems that you face, such as the difficulty of truth-telling and keeping your family and friends. Right, and, so you don't put them offside completely. Yeah, and the difficulties of self-indulgence and also broadening the genres out, you know, looking at travel memoir, looking at um, creative nonfiction, um, telling, you know, say, um, true crime and... Also, uh, the personal essay, which is one of my favourites, where you're exploring an idea. So it's also kind of broadening out the genre as well as kind of more sophisticated issues, I guess. So it's very pliable, life writing as a whole. When you come to start a work, what is one of the big dangers with a a new writer that haven't written anything before but think, oh, look, I've got some writing, uh, I've got some experiences in my life that I'd like to write about. Where would you suggest they start? Well, for sitting down and writing. For the first first time. You think you've got something to say, but you you don't think of yourself as a writer. Yes, and and, and I I have to say that, that, that probably, you know, because I've been doing writing workshops in this area for maybe 25 years, and certainly about half the people who come to the workshop are people who maybe have not thought of themselves as writers. So I know what that feels like for them. And and it's, it's, it's really... Um, realising for a start that just pouring it all out in the, on the page is not going to make a book. Okay, you know? but is that a good way to start, though, pouring it not out? Not necessarily. I think because I think people often fall into the kind of hole of, of writing as they do maybe in a journal and it gets a little okay. bit turgid yeah. and interned or it yeah. just becomes um, boring. I mean, my, my approach is, is much more... Um, Forget about topics. Forget about writing about your school days or your parents or friends right. or anything like that. Go into particular memories, particular because memories are much more vivid. They're much more alive. They're they're much more detailed and creative. Go in via particular memories rather than going in via topics. But the other thing for people starting out is, I think maybe think more like a patchwork quilt maker. Well, you're a good just, analogy. Like you're that. just making pieces for a start. You're not kind of like at school we're taught to plan it all out and work it all out, you know, and, and know where you're going. Whereas in memoir, it's better 
to not know where you're going. So baby steps to begin with. What yeah. about a, a short story, say just one? That can be a great structure. You know, yeah. you, you can actually think in terms of a series of short stories, if you like. Um, for example, Tom Hunkerford's um, Stories from Suburban Road, which is old now. I think it was written right back in the 70s or 80s. But it was a, sh- a series of short stories. They weren't chapters at all. And I think right. that I think that worked really well as, as a structure. You know, that's, it's, it's very effective. So... You don't have to think in terms of the whole book then. You're just working on this particular story, you know, maybe over a month or, or one, whatever. One piece of the quilt at a time. Yes, one piece of a quilt. And then maybe you can look at it and, and see, start seeing the patterns and textures and maybe what the stories are so you can start thinking about it. But I wouldn't make, you know, a room full of patches to start with <laughs> because then it's going to be overwhelming. You know, so I, I just start off that way. And as you start getting confident and you start seeing what the themes and patterns are, you can start realising what you want to emphasise, what you want to drop back. You don't have to write about, you know, every holiday that you ever had or whatever, um, but you might start realising that maybe, you know, it's your relationship with your father who demanded excellence that came out, you know, um, on the holiday to Tasmania because he wanted you to be the best skier or, or whatever it was. So so it's a matter then of not recording everything. I don't see life story writing or memoir or autobiography as history. That's right. the difference. I think a lot of people come to it thinking it's history, it's making a record of their life. But to me, it's about the stories of your life and what it's been about and what it's like no, to be makes here. Sense. Yeah, what, so it's yeah. not too dry. I mean, history yeah, could yeah. just be fact after fact yeah, after yeah. fact. Yeah. So you've, uh, you've got some great ways of organising your chapters. What I really like is after discussing a topic, you've got a reading or two as an example, and then you've got some terrific writing exercises. And one that really caught my eye in the book was, I'm not allowed to write a out. What sort of responses have you had in workshops to topics like that? That's one of my favourites. I often get them to write my, and name someone, my mother really wouldn't want me to write about, or my sister would hate me to write about, or my ex-husband would hate me to write about. And, and what it does, it gives people permission to write those forbidden topics. And the most extraordinary things come out. I actually think some of the best writing comes out of that particular exercise that you've picked because it's 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 kind of like you're not allowed to say these things but you're going to say them. Yeah. And do they read them out in the workshops? Well, yes, yes, yes. I have a bit of a rule in workshops because some people, you know, um, they just say if you feel comfortable but I'm like, jump in the deep end, yeah. God damn it. If everyone's getting undressed, you're yeah. not going to stay there clothed and watch us get sure. undressed. Yeah. You're, you're going to be doing it too. So everyone has to do it. And um, I think a lot of energy is released in that exercise. In breaking that taboo. Yeah, in breaking that taboo, you know. And, and I say it's not that you have to include it in your memoir, but you've gone there now, you've done that, and maybe you've actually worked something out, and maybe it's released a really powerful energy yeah. because you've broken that taboo. And people often say afterwards, wow, I feel fantastic. It's that energy, that emotional release yeah, that comes yeah, yeah. with it. Yeah. Now, you've also talked, I mean, there are so many chapters here, uh, but one I want to prioritise right now is talking about Chapter 12, Workshop 10, Madelines and Unicorns. It's about sensory detail. So do you find a lot of writers start by summarising things rather than giving sensory details of a scene? Very often. In some of my um, longer workshops, like say the Faber Academy in Sydney, which is a four-month workshop, um, very often when their first chapter turns out to be a summary of their whole book. (laughs) And so I really emphasise the writing, the senses, because we actually live 
uh, in a in a physical world, and people forget, you know, whatever they're writing about their emotions, their psychology, the events, the spiritual life, it still happens in a body and to a body at in a in a physical world. Well, you're you're immersed that. in that. Yeah. So you've actually drawn on Marcel Proust's experience of dipping a Madeleine cake into a cup of herbal tea, and what happens when he does that? The whole of his childhood come back. So there's this extraordinary piece I've actually extracted from Marcel Proust where he talks about that, and the whole of his childhood, the room that he was in, the house that he was in, the gardens, the whole of the, the village, the river Vivant, everything sprang into life. And that's what happens when you have that very powerful sense trigger. And I always ask people to go in via those sense triggers. For us, it might be a tomato sauce bottle. You know, who knows who knows what your Madeleines is. Sometimes I ask people, you know, about, about their Madeleines and, you know, in, in Australia, you know, a Vegemite sandwich can be a very powerful sure. Madeleine. In fact, I'd love to do a collection one day that was Vegemite sandwich based. Because <laughs> such good memories can, can well, come that, out that of those. That could be a good things. theme for a whole anthology. Yes, so. yes, yeah. I, I think it'd be fantastic. It was interesting because one time I had an American American in a workshop, and for her it wasn't anything. Oh, yeah. Didn't didn't do Draw anything. Didn't do anything for her. But but so it's 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 a matter of finding your particular um, madeleines. And I have a range of exercises for doing that for people to find their own madeleines. And you know, like creating a sense bank for yourself and writing down very particular sense memories that can work really well. And how they can snowball into complete scenes and bring That's back right. memories you think are, are not there but are in fact yes, there. Yes. Yes. Well, you've done a wonderful job of putting so many years of experience into your book. I'm going to say the title again, Writing True Stories. It's by Patty Miller. I'm going to say the subtitle again, The Complete Guide to Writing Autobiography, Memoir, Personal Essay, Biography, Travel and Creative Nonfiction. And it's published by Alan and Unlin. For today, thank you very much, Patty Miller. Thanks, Ewan. My next guest this morning is Sheridan Jobbins. She is a former TV presenter and reporter as well as a filmmaker who recently launched her debut book, a memoir titled Wish You Were Here. Sheridan Jobbins, welcome to Published or Not. Hello, hello. Your memoir, Wish You Were Here, is a very funny and moving account of a particular slice of your life. What was the disruption in your life that set the story in motion? Oh, look, we all we all have a crisis, I reckon. You, you achieve some of your dreams and then you've got to redefine the future. For me, it was coming home uh, from a trip overseas and the man I was married to had changed. He He just... He wasn't happy, and I, I was hectoring him and saying, you know, what's wrong? And finally he confessed and said he couldn't imagine sleeping with one woman for the rest of his life. Oh, uh, no. I know, I know. And in retrospect, I really should have just gone, oh, love, I know. You know, look at it from my point of view. But instead I just had a complete wig out, and, I, you know, that was the end of that. But uh, the real crisis came about 18 months later when we'd tried to work things out and it wasn't going so well. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, found myself bees in my head trying to be a grown-up. I'm going to be a grown-up. I'm going to be a grown-up. So instead of, like, putting the fax machine on redial or, you know, doing something hectoring, I thought I'd have a Horlicks, a nice soothing drink, go back to bed. <laughs> Went to get the jar of Horlicks, hit the Horlicks, hit the tea bags, hit the peaches, hit the plates, hit a glass which fell out of the cupboard and smashed into two. Didn't smash, broke into two, very neat on the stem. I'm a grown-up, I'm a grown-up, I'm doing good here. I'll put, I'll, I'll araldite it back together. So I opened a drawer to do it later and the drawer was completely full of broken crockery waiting for araldite. And I, I still would have done it but it was so full I couldn't put it in. And I just looked at these two pieces and I sort of went, psh, psh, broke the two, shattered them. Mm, just did that feel bang. good? Oh! <gasps> 
it felt so good. It felt so good. I took the whole drawer and I just smashed the lot. And then that, like this rising feeling of expression was just, so then I opened the cupboard, anything that was chipped, crazed, cracked, broken or his. Yep. Out it went. Bang, 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 bang. Went back to bed, slept the piece of the just, woke up the next morning, a centimetre of crockery everywhere, bits around the corner embedded in the wall. Perfect, wonderful, cleaned it all up, stepped out onto the landing with two bags of lady crockery <laughs> into a very concerned-looking neighbour who said, you're right, love? And I looked at him and thought, yeah, no, good, yeah. And he goes, are you sure? <laughs> I had broken everything at four o'clock in the morning and I live in a block of flats. And I just thought in that moment... I, there was nothing to keep me there. I didn't have kids. I worked in a safe job where they would give me time off. I cashed in my savings and basically a friend put up some money for the car. And I went to America. It was something that in that moment just was the only thing. It was like what I'd wanted to do since I was a kid, something I'd never been able to afford in the past, something that had always kept me. And I just went. I bought a big red Chevy 89 Camaro. Well, I want to get to that in a minute, but I just uh, there are so many funny scenes in the book. And one of them has got to be when you announce those plans to your uh, mum. What was her reaction? Oh, man. She just uh, – uh, my mother is one of life's forces of nature. She's a really <laughs> good, hardworking – woman of you know of, of substance and uh yeah she basically said no you couldn't do that so she organized a lunch uh with the napery and i knew i was in trouble when she poured out the good silver and all the, the things that she values and uh invited a friend sue to come over and talk me out of it because sue's sort of an intergenerational friend she's not old yeah. enough to be my mother not young enough to be her daughter but Sue was a terrible choice because Sue can't say no to an adventure. I mean, if you want to go nutty swimming at midnight, yeah, Sue's the one who will say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Um, so mum was sort of trying to get her inveigled into this conversation. And meanwhile, she was doing little num sums on, you know, backs of envelopes and finally got to the end of it and just went, ah, oh, now I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and mum and Thanks, I both Sue. looked at her and going, you what? She said, I'm in, I'm in. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for the car if I, you know, if I can drive back with you. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how I ended up being able to afford to go, basically. So mum's weapon of choice was, uh, yeah, it was my, my ticket to ride. But this was a big decision. I mean, driving across America by yourself, and, and Sue wanted to come but to join you later. So when you first got to LA, I and mean, there's some very funny incidents in the book, but the one that comes to mind immediately is when you go to buy this car, mm. which you eventually call Betty, and you say it's a bit like a scene out of Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Oh, it really was. I don't know if you I mean, when I saw the film Glen Gary, Glen Ross, it's about people always be closing and it's it's got a Baldwin brother as their head and he's such a bully and it's like when the film started about 10 minutes in, I'm thinking, oh, look, you guys need to sort this out. I'll just go and have a cup of tea and come back when you've worked it out. They're so ruthless about how to sell and the tricks of selling. And I went in and it was one of those long weekends where they had a car on special. In fact, I'd almost given up trying to find a car because I was looking for a Mercedes. I thought that right. was a good, reliable, you know, it's a country Australian car. Take a seat out, put a sheep in, it'll go forever. <laughs> so I was looking for an old Merc. Um, Unbeknownst to me, America has a car called a Mercury, which okay. is kind of like a Hyundai or a Daihatsu or something. And worse, I was looking for a vintage Hyundai or Daihatsu. So it was like – and they kept showing me these little tiptoe cars that were all nice lady cars. And I didn't – so when they showed me this 89 Chevy Camaro, which is a car favoured in certain quarters for drive-by shootings, it was like <laughs> – I just started to laugh. It was just the funniest. It was huge. It must have been about 12 feet long, you know, four metres long. It was just this monster 
red car. You'd call it a hoonmobile. A hoonmobile in a country that doesn't have the word hoon. Well, that was what I was going to uh, mention there. <laughs> a country that doesn't have a word for hoon. Now you've got a, some really good observations of language. Um, one of them that you quote fairly early on is George Bernard Shaw's classic comment about the Americans and Brits as quote two people divided by a common language. What are some of the language stumbling blocks you found as an Australian? Uh, there were uh, to begin with there were quite a few, but the most the most shocking for me per- personally was trying to buy a white coffee from oh, a black okay. woman. Yeah. Um, and so I'm at a counter and I'm, you, you know, could I have a white coffee, please? Because that would imply a coffee for a white person, would it? Well, <laughs> yeah, she just she just ripped me a new asshole. She just, oh, just like really? she was, you know, what you think we've got white coffee for white people and coffee for yeah, black people. Okay. And yeah. I'm going, no, no, it's like, uh, it's like, Coffee Milk. that's not black. And she was just getting, and finally a man tried to help and he's saying, um, with cream in it. And I go, no, I don't like cream. I, oh. I want milk. So if, if you got me a cup of coffee and a glass of milk. And so she brought me those and then I poured the milk into the coffee and I said, that's a white coffee. And she looked at me and went, oh, one another. <laughs> so she forgave. <laughs> she did forgive me. I was very, but, but there were all sorts of things like ringing up to hire something. And I rang up, could I speak to the hire department? And they said, hire them what? <laughs> And I said, so it's well, all renting, I guess. It yeah, is rentals, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's yeah. like, I give you money, you give me the thing. When yeah. I give you back, you give me some of them. Oh, rentals, yeah. putting you through. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there are all sorts of things. There's, it the, almost sounds like you got down to finger puppets at times. <laughs> yeah. But look, I love one of the turns of phrase you had in there. It was commenting about why Americans call it math and not maths. And just a classic line, I guess maths, math doesn't need a plural because Americans only plan to do it once. That really was great. But I want to go back to the decision to buy this Larry car for your trip. Um, why such a Larry car? I mean, you've explained you were looking around. You could have gone for the sort of safer, less conspicuous one. And it did draw attention and the fact that, you know, men seemed to love it and it was a real hoonmobile. Did it be, be, um, worry you at all? Not oh, did it worry me at all? Yes, at the outset, of course it did. I, one of the other things was, like, I, I quite liked the turquoise uh, Mustang in uh, Thelma and Louise. Like, oh, I could right. see the, okay. the the joy of that car. Yeah. But those cars were like ten thousand, which is still yeah. incredibly cheap by yeah. Australian standards. The other thing was that the five thousand that I'd been given to buy a car had turned into three and a half thousand US. So I was sort of a bit stumped for choices. So. This was by far the most obscenely glamorous car that I could afford. It's sort of got that whole Corvette look, but it's yeah. it's the 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 Cindy to Corvette's Barbie, um, <laughs> and uh, so when I looked at it, I, I was just at first I was just laughing. It was just hilariously like if I didn't want to tiptoe, this was a car not to tiptoe. This was a screaming red fire engine with a yeah. sirens blazing, but also it had a six cylinders, so it actually had quite a lot of grunt. Um, but I, I said no originally because I thought that's what you're supposed to do, and then. I didn't make it 10 metres and I went back to do it. But it was also on special. So the whole day, it was like six rounds with used car salesmen was just such a, such a thing. And finally, I ended up being handed from one salesman to another till I ended up in the franchise owner's office. And he's basically leaning across the table. And I'm saying, if it's such a good deal, why will you let me go? And he went, it's Friday. I have sales to meet before I lose the franchise. If I don't make this sale, I lose the franchise. Buy the damn car. car. 
And it was like, <laughs> yeah, I bought the damn car. Um, but, oh, man, it took me a while. for uh, Like, I don't think she was any happier about having little pussyfoot me kind of going, ooh, ooh, boom, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. What are you doing there? And she had a sort of a prolapse thing. So when I tried to get a license, she beached herself on a, a little tiny, you know, six-inch retaining wall, five-centimeter retaining wall. Oh, the, it oh, was just, carriage. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she broke down everywhere. She hated the rain. Dust was just an anathema to her. I mean, she was a streetcar. She was, she'd been loved by a man around the corner who, you know, signed a piece of paper to say that uh, he'd been the only owner. You know, it was, it was madness. Yeah. But she was a beautiful car, and she's a real character in the journey for me personally. It was like I wasn't alone. I was with Betty. Absolutely. It was, yeah. She's another character in the, uh, the whole story. I'm talking with Sheridan Jobbins about her memoir, Wish You Were Here. Um, you mentioned Thelma and Louise, and one of the first places you go on the journey is you go into the desert. Uh, where did Thelma and Louise, although fictitious, uh, where did it actually take place? Uh, well, they're, they're driving... Uh, East to west, and it it ends in Monument Valley. Oh, sorry, I meant the the plunge. The, it's yeah, that's Monument, Monument Valley. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and yeah, uh, yeah. that's a uh, Ridley Scott or one of the Scotts yeah. brothers. Um, he actually lit the whole valley, which is kind of a, okay. you know a, a history as a filmmaker. Um, sort of put me in touch with that. But I always was. I saw the film again quite recently just to see if I liked yeah. it. It's a very good film and it stands up very well. But I always thought it was a very male ending to have them fly off the end, oh, like that okay. they didn't want to face the consequences yes. of their actions. And uh, I, I thought, yeah, I mean, it was, in, in retrospect, it does actually stand up quite well. But at the time, and certainly when I did the journey, I yeah. thought, you know, Look at that. I'm going to survive this trip. I've got to ask for your alternative ending, though, if uh, <sighs> other than driving over the cliff into the canyon, Monument Valley. Well, uh, as a film ending, that's, you know, I, you've got that, you've got I woke up and it was all a dream. I mean, oh. you certainly don't want to go through the hard yards, yeah. but it, it seems to me women seem to be pretty good at rolling up their sleeves and doing all of that little work that yeah. that gets yeah. you out of it. I mean, it, it justifiable homicide would be the, the final yeah. charge. Oh, yeah. I guess it would. Now, um, of all the things you do on the trip across a book, and as I say, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but is there a particular highlight that stands out in your memory? Uh, weirdly, there are, there are almost every every part of it is a highlight. Certainly breaking down on the Navajo reservation was uh, transformative. The generosity of American people one-on-one I found extraordinary. Um we're really caught up in the time of Trump and the, the sort of the argy-bargy of the 36% who won't give up their position on him. Um, and I think when we do that, we lose sight of the fact that middle America is actually generous and curious yeah. and kind. And it is a land that invokes dreams, that people dream of America in a way they don't dream of Australia or they don't dream of you know other places, uh, that it, it invokes that. And the people live that. They They are... I, I thought it was funny that almost every person who I had some interaction with would say, you know, aren't you afraid a woman by yourself, you're going to be murdered? And it's like, no, I'm driving at high speed on the wrong side of the road. I'm frightened I'll die in a car accident. I'm worried about that. Yeah, yeah, where are your priorities? Mm. I um, I had a little uh, a little s- sort of stopover ticket um, on my air five because I was driving and uh, I went over to London because a friend had been very kind to me, but her husband had been very sick. And uh, so I went to sort of say, thank you for being nice to me and how are you going? Because this is obviously hard. And uh, that's Mark Colvin's wife. And it was when he was first sick. And uh, so in its own way, that was a highlight because I I became quite good friends. Obviously, I was already friends with her, but became good friends with him as well. And uh, when I was finishing the book, I, I sent him 
two drafts just to sort of say, as a journalist, as a former journalist, I'm really uncomfortable with putting dialogue in. So he explained to me the difference between memoir and uh, biography and that to misquote was acceptable as long as the intent was correct. And, uh, and in fact, in May this year, he gave me a little line that's on the back of the book just to sort of endorse it, which I felt was a, both a parting gift and a really special thing. Well, that's a good way to wind things up with Mark Colvin. An absolutely riveting read, hilarious and moving simultaneously. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Publish or Not today, Sheridan Jobbins. And the book again is Wish You Were Here, published by Firm Press. Let's round out this show and life writing with a song that might bring back some deeply buried memories for one or two listeners. Here's In Excess with their hit from 1980, Just Keep Walking. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.